Thanks for joining us for this Ember podcast. Today we have Mr. David Gray. Mr. Gray is a theologian who lives in St. Louis, Missouri and runs St. Dominic's Media. He is a dynamic YouTuber, publisher, author. He also has a fascinating conversion story, which we will hear today. Today's podcast is an edited conversation between myself and Mr. Gray. It starts off with him describing his conversion, then moves on to his interest in liturgy, worshiping at Orientum, what it's like being a black Catholic in the U.S., Freemasonry, book recommendations, and much more. As a former agnostic, as a former Protestant, as a former Freemason, David's story is fascinating, so stay tuned and enjoy. So my background, I grew up in a family that I like to call very Protestant. They were they were so Protestant, they belonged to they all belonged to different Protestant denominations. So <laughs> very Protestant. And I was really close to my grandmother. She belonged to the AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, and that's the church I primarily went to if I was going to go to church. But um, I really was never evangelized into the faith. Never, she never really articulated or shared with me who Jesus was. Anything. It was just a church. You know, this is what you do on Sundays. And um, but I think she's a very deeply spiritual woman. But she was, you know, she didn't, um, you know, sit me down and really teach me Jesus as process would say. But um, so by the time I got to college, I was really just confused. I think I was just, I was searching for God, but at the same time, I was very anti. Christian. Um, I, had, I had fallen into what I went to predominantly black university. And so at the time you had the Pan-African movement, this back to Africa thing. And also at the same time, you had this, um, this notion that I, I accepted, you know, without un- notion I accepted really uncritically was that there, everything that bad that happened to blacks in America was because of white Christians. And um, so that's another thing that really made, made me really anti-Christian. So I was, I was, I was searching for God. And I was looking at different things, Islam and Judaism and things like that. Um, but Christianity wasn't even really on the radar for me. I really thought Jesus is fiction. He's made a character. And um, so, and also at this time, I was, um, when I was a sophomore in college, I became a Freemason. So Freemason, Freemasonry for me, because of its systems and its structures and its moral law and its rules and what it offers as far as revelation, I saw what Freemasonry was for me, even though Freemason, most Freemasons will say Freemasonry isn't a religion, but it had a lot of religiosity there, a lot of concepts that for me, a person who was basically an agnostic at the time, for me, that was sort of religion. It had some rules, it had some structure, especially in a ritual. Um, and so, and so that pretty much, when, that was pretty much my 20s. And so I did arrive at a, a point in time in my life where um, everything that I thought that made me me who I was, was I thought I was going to lose, it was going to be taken away. And whether it was my degrees, the money I'd accumulated, my family, it was really just a dark, deep, dark time in my life. And um, I was ready just to end it all. It was better for me at that time to not live than to continue to suffer and lose everything I thought made me me. And so um, I tried to commit suicide. And um, through asphyxiation and suffocating myself, um, and so by, when I was in the process of doing this, you know, with a bag on my head, a rope around my neck, I was trying to turn the rope to make it tighter. And by the, by the second half turn, I heard a voice, an audible voice, but from without, not from within, but from without. And a voice has said, I love you. I am here. And it was weird. It was strange because 
I mean, it should be weird and strange if you hear a voice and no one's there. <laughs> but, and then I asked the question in my head, well, who, who said that, you know? And the answer that came back was Jesus. Which is a really strange answer that Jesus would be the answer, like, because, but I believed it when I, my, you know, I felt that um, that's what the voice was. I was. Okay, it was just, I just knew that was true. But it was a strange answer because, like I said, I believe Jesus was fiction. He was made up. And also, I was, like, very anti-Christian um, as, a, as a Freemason. By this time, I had become what was called a district deputy. I was a representative of the Grand Master for Western Ohio in my Grand Lodge. And I used to go through these lodges and enforce what was called Anderson's Constitution. It was a document from 1738, no, 1728, um, founding document of Freemasonry, and which said that um, Freemasonry is supposed to be secular, it's not supposed to have any preferences towards any religion. And so I used this document as, as a deputy to tell the masters of lodges that when I come visit your lodge, I did not want to hear the name of Jesus said on the lodge. And I could care less about Anderson's Constitution, but it's the fact that I didn't want to hear the name Jesus. Right. It was like saying in the prayer Batman's name to me. It was like the same thing. It was like annoying. But um, so yeah, that's that's pretty, so after that, after I really accepted that that was Jesus, that was the first time in my life I picked up the gospels. And um I read the gospels for the first time in my life. And um and I really believed that Jesus is real and he was interested in my life. And so I followed Jesus. I think that's what you do. If someone saves your life, you follow them, right? Like somebody pushes you, pushes um, you out of the way of a truck that's coming your way. And, you know, you want to go thank the person, you know, maybe buy him dinner. And this is what I did. I just followed Jesus and I followed him all the way to his Catholic church. So then you start reading the Gospels and that leads you to? I mean, it's the first, first process, I think my default in this country, at least up north, um, because I was still in Ohio at this time, by, by default, you become a Protestant, right? That's the, that's the Christian experience. So, um, so I was baptized. So that experience happened to me in 2004. So August in 2005, yeah, I'm reading the Bible. I said, oh, baptism seems to be important. <laughs> so um, I signed to be baptized and baptized in August. And then that's when, you know, so I'm trying to live my life as a committed Christian. I'm trying to figure out how, how do you do that just by through scripture. And so I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. And I said, well, I have to join a church. And I, and I started asking myself, well, what church? And I thought, well, maybe I'd just go back and join the AME church that, you know, I was, I was brought them up with my grandmother. And, um, and so they kept gnawing at me and gnawing at me. Like, how, how, why, why do I have to choose what church do I join? Why, why should that be my choice? That didn't make any sense. And I, it was really troubling me. And I remember um, telling Jesus, not so much asking, but sort of telling him that, you know, if you're God, if you're real, if you really did start a church, then I should be able to find that church. Because I really thought that was true. That I was really starting to question what I heard, you know, those, those, that, you know, a year or so before that, that voice. Because all these Christians out here all, you know, they have different interpretations of the Bible. They all claim to be teaching the truth. And that just didn't seem like God to me. Like, why are these, all these people claiming to preach the truth, but the people aren't in one church? So I was like, well, God, if you're real, then you should, your church should still be here. I'm going to go look for that church. And so that's what I did. And I just started with a basic premise that you want to find out what happened to the churches in the Bible. Mm -hmm. That's find out what happened to them. 
And I thought, I honestly thought I may find a church, the original church, but I thought it might be like a small church in the Middle East. Something, you know, recluse, you know, but still holding on to what the apostles taught. And I had no idea that I would, you know, <laughs> you know find my way to the Catholic church. It was not even on the radar whatsoever. I baptized in 2005 as a Protestant. So 2000, you know, beginning like January 2006 wow. is when I went on my search. And so it ended up being confirmed that same year in August, um, August, uh, August 8th. You know, I, I would say two things convinced me. Um, before I even picked up a book, um, you know, I read some books. I read some Paul Jackson's books by Pastor Madrid. I even picked up the Catechism at some point in time. So I read a lot of good books. But even before I started down that path, um, the first thing I did was just went to a Catholic Mass. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as I walked into the space, church, I just felt something was different here. And the people who I looked around, they were quiet. They were they liked their contemplation. It was just something different about that space. That I said, okay, this is this is something. And so that that was really grabbed a hold of me. And then the liturgy went on. I didn't know it was called liturgy, but I would say church service, as I would call it. You know, um, went on, and people were standing up and kneeling down. It was ritual there. I said, oh wow, this is this is spontaneous. This is this is ritual. And, and so that grabbed me. Then I would, I would say that. The, the next thing was that when I realized that everything I had learned about Catholicism was wrong, well, a lot of things, you know, what I thought about what they, um, I thought Catholics worship Mary, um, I thought they were wrong about the, the Holy Trinity. Just by reading the Catechism of Catholic Church and reading the footnotes and seeing that everything is documented, and I, it wasn't, it wasn't important for me to, I didn't think, even if I didn't believe in Catholicism, it, at least Catholics know what they believe and what they believe is sound and is reasonable. Mm-hmm. And so um, so that was that was clear. Um, the history itself was another convincing moment when I'm finding out that the Catholic Church was the churches of the Bible, that they can that the Catholic Church can trace all the bishops from Rome and all the ancient churches too, Egypt and Antioch, you know, there's a paper trail there. I was convinced about that. I was lied to about the great apostasy and all these things. The point where I realized I had to become Catholic was learning about the Holy Eucharist. And it was difficult for me because how can this be, right? But I picked up a book by, I think her name is Joan Carroll. It's called The Eucharist of Miracles. Mm-hmm. And in that book, she documents a lot of the Eucharistic miracles. You know, the, the, um, the host turned into flesh and then the, the blood turning into actual blood. And it was those miracles that I was like, I mean, how can you deny this? Right, and I, I, at that point in time, I realized that the Holy Eucharist is true. If it's true, there's no reason not to be Catholic. Mm-hmm. It's not. I mean, that's that's. There's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. That's Jesus. You eat God. You consume God. You become like God. No religion is offering that. But I also say, well, if Catholicism isn't true, then Catholicism in their teachings that you can eat God and drink His blood. If that's not true, then Catholicism is very dangerous. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that, that's ridiculous. But I accepted it. That is it's true. And then that, that's when I was really convinced beyond a reasonable doubt um, that I had to be convinced. That's when you're all in. All in. Now, during the RCA process, what were the things you still had to wrestle with? Did, yeah. did everything kind of just fall into place after that? Now, I think the Eucharist fell into place during the RCA process, um, even towards the end. It was, it was really it was hard for me. I think this really much because I think I think what was important for me was 
the acceptance of the authority piece. Once I accepted the authority piece, then pretty much everything else fell in, in, into place. I think what I struggled with was myself on a lot of issues, like getting out of the way and just getting everything I had learned before, and just accepting what the Catholic Church teaches, you know. And also, I struggled with the idea of, um, I mean, as a black person, I, I just had never met a black Catholic. Yeah. I, I didn't even know blacks could be Catholic. Yeah. I just, you know, it was just, so enough at that time, I think a lot of black, like a lot of black Americans, I think um, it's important to be culturally black. Mm-hmm. And what that means, at least up north, from places where you don't find a lot of black Catholics, is that to be culturally black means that you know there's you know there's certain boxes that you check off. You know you you know you're voting Democrat, or um, I don't know you're listening to the right music, you're watching the right TV shows, um, you're dressing a certain way, you're walking a certain way, and you're, and you're Protestant. <laughs> um, so. Um, so that was a struggle for me. It shouldn't have been, but to be honest, you know, it was. I didn't want to be labeled as someone who was not culturally black by being Catholic. Yeah. Let's get into how you fell into love with theology and studying theology and St. Dominic's Press. Hmm. How did all that come about? So, yeah, so after, um, so shortly after I became Catholic, my wife divorced me. Uh, part of the reason was now, you know, she was still agnostic, and now I was Catholic. She just didn't think how, she didn't understand how that was going to work out. So, so I was, um, I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life. You know, I felt, felt that I may have been called to the priesthood. So I started exploring that route, started spending a lot of time with the Dominican fathers. And um, at my parish in, in Youngstown, Ohio, St. Dominic's in Youngstown, Ohio. And... But I really couldn't enter seminary yet because my youngest daughters were still mm-hmm. school age. And so I talked to the vocation director and they said, well, what you want to do now is, you know, start working on your master's degree in theology. And by the time your youngest is out of high school, you'll be ready to enter seminary. So that's the, so I started down that road, started working on my master's in theology first with the Franciscan University in Steubenville and then later on Ohio Dominican University in um, Columbus, Ohio. So so I have a master's degree, so I got obtained a master's degree in theology. Um, by that time, also, I found my new wife, uh, Felicia. And so, obviously, I discerned out the priesthood. <laughs> but, um, you know, what do you do with a master's degree, you know, <laughs> in theology? So I started teaching, what do you do? <laughs> so just for, for listeners who might uh, be confused, so your first marriage was invalid. Right. Right. So this was, that's what opened the doorway for you to get married in the Catholic Church. Right. So yeah, we, it was after I became Catholic, I went through the annulment process of my diocese in Columbus. And so I think in 10, um, the diocese had urged. Declared it invalid. Declared it invalid, yeah. yeah. And, um, so you met your new wife, and then, and then, and, and then what happens from there? So the priest is out. <laughs> yeah, so that's out. Yeah, yeah, so that's out. And then so um, I felt quite at that point in time, this is in 2000. 17 um year after we got married that i just want to use my my talents my experience in writing my experience in publishing um, my passion for theology to um, start st dominic's media and with the purpose to publish books on liturgy orthodox books um, on liturgy on catholic hits and history to promote the faith from a very orthodox perspective but i felt there's there's a there's a small niche in the Catholic publishing market to publish really good books on liturgy mm-hmm. and Catholic history, mm-hmm. and so that's the primary work that we've been engaged in. So so far, how many books have you uh, published through St. Dominic? So we published three books 
so far. Um, you've published um, a book, uh, two books by um, Dr. Nicholas Newman, one on um, the liturgy of um, um, St. John, um, St. Gregory, a theologian, and on a book by a Dominican named uh, Remiges uh, de Gorlami, who was should be more well-known than Dante because he was a lot smarter than Dante. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, Dante's inferno in his whole concept was, um, you know, Dante, Dante thought all the politicians doing, doing the, uh, at the time. Should, yeah, hell, right, right, right. And so Gorlami had a more mature idea. He thought that we should promote, what, it mean, what does it mean to, uh, what, is, what, what is it as Catholics, what is the common good? That's what we, we, should, we should offer soon. So we published that book, and also my, my first book um, on the liturgy is called The Divine Symphony and Escorting on Theology of the Catholic Mass. So those are three books so far. And then this year, we got three books coming up. And the first one is coming out in February, uh, February 7th, on the Feast of St. Pius IX, or Blessed, Saint, um, uh, Pope Pius IX. And it's, going, it's called the, the, Catechism, the Catholic Catechism on Freemasonry. So we're going to talk about putting all the papal documents that have ever been written by Freemasonry, the two canon laws, and two of the um, documents by the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith. We're going to discuss the historical context of those documents and also discuss the, the theological implications behind this uh, nearly 300-year prohibition against Catholics becoming Freemasons. Mm, great. So one of, one of your passions is liturgy. Yes, it is. Um, so, talk about ad orientum liturgy. So, mm-hmm. in every Eastern... Christian liturgy, they always face face the Right. And you say something very interesting last night that I thought about of how all monotheistic religions worship directionally. Right. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, I, I thought that of all the, in a new order, right, of all the different ways that we could see how it's different than um, the Tridentine, right, or um, the traditional Latin Mass, as we call it, of all the ways we could say, okay, these, these things were changed. Um, the, the, the most fundamental for me that seemed to be a complete innovation that was, was orienting the mass around the altar sacrifice. And I thought this is the, the first time that we ever seen in any monotheistic religion where the people were called to face in, other, in another direction than to the source of their revelation. Mm-hmm such as Jews have always faced the Temple Mount, Muslims have always faced Mecca, Christians for, for since the beginning have always, faced, have always faced Calvary in the direction that we worship and offer sacrifice. And so, um, so I think the, the ad orientum, um, especially the wonderful uh, how, um, um, Pope Benedict XVI, how he, he attempted to inspire priests to in, in, um, offer it more was, I think, a beautiful way to reconcile um, how liturgy should be directed with the new order, right? Mm-hmm. So, I'd like to move on to the Black Catholic experience in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just talked about the book, uh, I forgot the name of the author. Uh, oh, Cyprian Davis. Cyprian Davis. I read yeah. that book in seminary in my history class. And yeah. It was very powerful for me. So this is, we have a, a powerful history about Black Catholics in America that we don't talk about a lot. Uh, some key figures, but one of the one of the major problems in the in the Catholic experience in America 
is through the lack of leadership and, and the lack of targeted evangelization. So at one point in our country, we had many Catholics, black Catholics, but because of political correctness at the time, which is different now, but 100 years ago, uh, political correctness was not evangelizing uh, in some ways. Uh, yeah. There's yeah. the Bal- famous Baltimore Council yeah. uh, that came up, and, and the, some of the Southern bishops asked for help from the other bishops to evangelize black Catholics, and they refused. Yeah. And a very sad time in our, in our history. Um, so there's been a lack of leadership in some ways among uh, black Catholic Americans. And so there's two dangers we want to avoid, two extremes. So one extreme is to say, well, to be Catholic means uh, you don't need your culture. Hmm. And that's dangerous, right? So some, 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 uh, some, some Catholics will say, well, to be uh, a black Catholic or a white Catholic they're not going to have any difference. But culture is very important. Just, yeah. just as a family, the church always recognizes that family is the, the key transmitter of the faith. Right. In a certain sense, a culture that's oriented Christ as king also transmits the faith more powerfully. Because hmm. uh, it, it provides a matrix that children can be uh, can encounter Christ in every act of their lives. And so we see that any culture that gives soul to Christ and, and its unique expressions and, and unique uh, or a beautiful thing that the church wants to preserve. Right. And so we want to avoid that extreme of saying, well, to be Catholic means everyone's going to be the same. <laughs> On the other hand, we, we've seen because of the, the void and the vacuum of black Catholic leadership, you, you've seen kind of a, progre- a progressivism take a place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically, um, a little bit of liberation theology has crept into place. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes um, it's been just replaced with political movement, you know, just whatever we think politically is what we're going to think religiously. And so, uh, like you talked about a little bit, what do you think about uh, what are some key some key players in, in leadership right now in the black Catholic American experience um, and how we need to kind of get away from this automatic idea that to be a black Catholic means that you're automatically liberal or progressive. Yeah. That, that, that's a really a Rich question. I mean, we could spend a, a lot of time there. Um, and I, I think one of the problems is that of you know, United States Bishops Council, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, there's, there's about 3 million black Catholics in the United States mm-hmm. right now. 70, about 76% of those, they say, belong to parishes like yours that are diverse or predominantly white. Only about 24 percent of those Catholics belong to parishes that are the Catholic church that's predominantly black. These churches that are primarily in the East Coast and in the South, and in some of your largest, you know, largest cities in the Midwest, like Detroit and Chicago and even St. Louis. But it seems as though that that minority of black Catholics, that 24 percent, are the ones that are still guiding this narrative, this, this definition of what does it mean to be a black Catholic. And if you look at all the, the Black Catholic ministries, whether it's the National Black Catholic Congress or the Black Catholic Theological Symposium in Chicago, you look at a lot of these organizations and they're still guided by that, that mindset of the 24% that, um, that I, I, you know, I think has been hijacked by some um, things like you said, like the liberation of theology and also be more closely aligned with some of the social justice activities that we see taking place in a lot of um, urban centers. 
So what I what I, I would like to see is a conversation take place between that 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 minority group of the twenty four percent with the the larger group of the seventy six percent who has a very different experience of what it means to be a black Catholic. And I think I think what you you said was, was brilliant. That I mean. The, the black half experience isn't monolithic, and, and I, I would like the the, the twenty four percent of the minority group of black Catholics who control the message and the, the, the agenda and this idea of what it means to be black Catholic to listen to the large group of black Catholics and listen to our experience and what does it mean for us to be black Catholics in this this narrative this I mean this um, in the in the broader in the broader church where we are in America, and I think I think out out of that out of that conversation these two groups can have. Uh, we can diversify um, and, and broaden out what does it mean to be black Catholic and kind of move forward and to evangelize the whole church. I can move on to Freemasonry. Freemasonry by its nature is antithetical to Christianity. I can't explain why, why one cannot be a Christian and be a Freemason. Yeah, that's a great introduction to it. Yes, it's antithetical to Christianity altogether. When Pope um, Clement XII, in 1738, he wrote a document called In Enmity. That is, um, it was Latin for high warning. It was a papal bull that he wrote. And in there, he had, he had delineated four reasons why Catholics cannot be Freemasons. And, and the first one was that, was the most important one, is that it promotes indifferentism. Just on a philosophical level, Freemasonry, yes, this organization, it does, you know, it has some philanthropy work um, it, it presents itself as a brotherhood as a fraternity but also has a philosophy it has has a moral law it has a moral teaching it has uh, philosophical ideas it has a way to live your life it has sacramental character that in, in within enclosed within a teaching is this idea that all religions are the same there's no one that's greater than another anyone who belongs to a monotheist religion can become a Freemason and so Pope Clement the, the 12th, he saw that, and he said, well, this is indifferentism. Because Freemasonry in itself, it says that, you know, it doesn't, you know, has uh, a sort of a name for a deity. They call it the Grand Architect Universe. None of the Grand Architect Universe, you can you can say your God, whether it's, it's Buddha or, I don't want to say Buddha, we'll say Allah or Yahweh or um, Jesus. Um is part of that um, grand architected universe that we can all exchange our name of our God for the grand architected universe. And so this um, Pope Clement XII saw this and he thought, well, this is, like I said, indifferentism because it subordinates Catholicism under this broader idea of these men coming together and forming this, what Anderson's Constitution calls a universal um, religion. The Constitution itself of Freemasonry calls itself a universal religion. And it says that it's the um, it's supposed to be the center of union, and the center of union is a dangerous word for Catholics because Christ is supposed to be the center of union. And also, um, future popes such as Leo XIII um, and the Shumanic Genus, he had saw that Freemasonry with their teaching um, by um, oh he called it naturalism. Because Freemasonry is teaching that it's not the sacraments or God's grace that makes you a better person. That is, if you just apply these working tools that an operative Mason would use, if you apply them philosophically, you can see how a hammer can make you a better person. 
you can see how a 21st gauge, if you just apply the philosophy that you get divided. So, uh, say an operative mason would take a 21st gauge. So grace yeah, grace, yeah, grace doesn't exist. It's like um, what Pelusianism, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, yeah, so Leo the 13th called that naturalism. Freemasonry was just using things of nature and your senses and denying God and his grace to make people better. So, and a lot of Freemasons, even, and I've, many, and I've heard of many, and I care for many who are Catholic, they too want to rely, rely on the idea that it's just a brotherhood, it's just an organization of those civic activities. Okay, but again, people like Popes like Leo and Pius IX, they brought that up as well. They say we can't dismiss the danger of Freemasonry by just looking at its philanthropy work and its brotherhood. Under no circum, under no grounds whatsoever, this have been, has been a consistent teaching since 1738 until now that Catholics cannot be Freemasons for, for primarily its religious indifferentism. Um, the very philosophy of Freemasonry is indifferent. I think it is. Yeah, I, I think I think it's pretty clear. I think that it can't be denied. So if a Catholic is a Freemason and, and they they want to repent for what they did, what, what should a Catholic do when they fall into the position of Freemasonry? Yeah, um, I think the yeah, first thing they should do is renounce the membership, right? Repent. I, when I say renounce the membership, I don't mean you have to write a formal letter or anything like that. But intellectually, faithfully, just renounce it. Be done with it. Take the bubble stick off the <laughs> Yeah, right. And throw away all your you know your your jewels and regalia. And then second, um, repent and three, make a good confession. Go to a good priest, make a, a good confession, and be free from Freemasonry and never go back. Right? Uh, let's talk about some book recommendations. I want to talk spirituality. Someone who is trying to get into their Catholic faith and want to go deeper in their interior life, what are some book recommendations on spirituality that they can read? Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of my favorites are okay. Uh, Classics that I read when I first came into the faith, like St. John of the Cross, Dark Night of the Soul, St. Teresa, um, Is a Siena, an Interior Castle, um, St. Teresa, Little Flower, her book. Those, those, are, those are a lot of books that, 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 help, that, that are accessible and free nowadays yeah. that you can really um, dig into because I think they, I think the cool thing about those is that they, they recognize the importance of um, books like that, recognize the struggle of the interior self that we have with um, the sin in the world, right? And um, overcoming through God's grace those those things that drag us down. Last, last thing. Uh, I think I've been with all my heart the last year or so since the McCarrick scandal. Mm-hmm. In some ways, the McCarrick scandal almost like a ground zero. The 9-11, the bloodshed moment Since of mobilization, a lot of lay people uh, taking the faith more seriously, taking ownership of the faith more seriously. Mm-hmm. You actually see some good come out of it. People, mm-hmm. no more time for snoozing and, and, and just shoving differences down the throat. Mm-hmm. You know, I went back to, you know, what we're trying to do at St. Dominic's with, with the liturgy is teaching the liturgy, the meaning, um, the history, the mystery of it. And I think that's that's one area where all Catholics, like you say, you have your charismatics and your traditionals can can agree that um, the source of some of our faith is the Holy Eucharist, right? Um, Catholics that they they may disagree about the liturgy, 
there may be some points where they can't even um, conversate. But like you said, taking ownership of the faith, not tolerating bullcrap, and standing firm and holding fast to the faith. And I think that that's just the bottom line. No matter what tradition you're coming from, um, just stop taking the bullcrap that people want to get out to us and want to have us accept it as normal because it's and not. That whole fucking truth that we demand, modernism, progressivism, the LGBT agenda. Yeah. I mean, you name it, it's a whole bunch of isms. It's, it's still the indifferentism, um, this this false notion of social justice as something detached from um, the, the liturgy. Or, do, or dogma. Uh, do, yeah, or dogma. Um, um, homosexualism, this idea that, that people are created by God to be this way and they, they can't change. Yes, we have people in the church with same-sex attraction. We have people with all types of dispositions towards um, sin, okay, or immoral behavior. Yes. But to dismiss that as saying that it's normal, that we should just accept sin for what it is and not appeal to the graces and to the sacraments is ridiculous. And so just not accepting these things that people are trying to pass off as normal. Um, this, this apathy that's going on, we just get to the, the point in time we're just going to go to Mass and go home for for the week and then come back on Sunday and just have our own little private faith. I think that is over. I think it's it's a war going on. Unfortunately, in some countries, it's a war against the laity and the Episcopacy. And um, we need a, the, the faithful priests and the bishops and the laity just need to take back our church. Yes. Um. Eternal Father, we just come before you at this point in time seeking your mercy and your graces. Now, thank you for this opportunity to come here with Father Andre, here at Our Lady of Lourdes, who will share the faith. We ask that you continue to bless his ministry and his household and his church, Lord God. And all the church, we pray that um, we understand, Lord God, that your son went through his own passion. And we understand that the church itself is it has to deal with its own passion, its own trials, we pray that you will raise us up, Lord God, and strengthen us to persevere all the way to the end. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, have a good afternoon.